Hello, welcome to the One Life Podcast, where we talk about things from One Life Church, but ultimately things we think can relate to you and your one only life. My name is Sarah Inman. I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast. I'm joined as always by co-host of the podcast and our lead pastor, Brett Nicholson. I actually remembered to say everything. It's been a while, Brett. I know oh, you have. It's been, according to you, it's been seven weeks it's about since we that, did yeah. it. Yeah, well, that, that has to be right, because it was it was before Christmas, correct? Yeah. My, okay. My, yeah, my last week here was like the second week of December. So. Yeah. And that was the podcast that we did talk to you about your uh, before you were stepping out on staff. Yep. And we did uh, assure everyone that she wasn't going away from One Life, and she'd still be a part of doing the podcast. And then we didn't do one for we haven't, seven yeah. weeks. But I have been so, at West, so, just if anyone's yeah, been at West, they've seen me yeah, over there. She, yeah, that's it's right. Been great, She's been attending. Honestly. It's, it's been great, great to just be to go West. to church and then leave. Yeah, that's right. Not, that is the good thing when you <laughs> work at a church and you go to other churches where you have absolutely no responsibilities yeah. whatsoever. It feels pretty good. You know, yeah. what my favorite part of church is right now. And I don't know that. After, not not because I don't enjoy church, but right after church is over, like the time you just get to stand and talk to people. Like I feel like I didn't get to do that for a long time on staff. It's like you're always trying to do something. That's true. Turn yeah. something off, you know, whatever. And it's like now I just get to chat with people. I love it. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. That's, yeah. And, and this, but a close second is the sermon, right? Of, of course, of course yeah. yeah, that's right. Very close second. That's always got to be added. So, yeah, and we're joined today by Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett, and they were joined with Brett yesterday on the stage of One Life, and uh, had some conversations about some questions that people sent in. Uh, and Brett, tell us a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, we uh, we opened up. We did a One Life Explorer edition, which is where we try to structure the service around something you can bring friends to who do not believe, or you know, just talk about things uh, along the value that we have. Called, uh, we believe you should bring your brain to church, and so uh, we've done several different subjects so far. But we decided just to do a, a day that was all Q and A, uh, and and so we we did some preloaded questions on social media. We did some then live in the room, and we had. Uh, the cool thing is we had much, uh, much more questions come in than we were able to answer in the time allotted. So uh, what we said was we would defer the other ones to the podcast because we didn't want the questions that people ask. We wanted to respect that and uh, address all the things. So that was what I was really excited about is that we did have more questions than we had time to get to it. So uh, so I have a pretty good list here, and we'll same thing. We'll get to as many as we can in the time allotted, and we'll just keep going after it. And uh, so I appreciate these guys being here and w- being willing to uh, to help us go through that. And, and I, I think even what's cool about just like, getting questions from people is that even some of the other exploratorians, not that they haven't been great, but like sometimes the question people have asked me, like, who's asking some of these questions? Like, who is the audience for this? Well, this is literally people sending in their questions. So that's they right. are the audience here. Yeah, like so. Braxton did one on consciousness that I w- thought was wonderful. But you wonder, did anybody ever wonder about, is this consciousness yeah. point to God or not? Does it? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it does, and I enjoyed yeah. it thoroughly. But maybe there might have been people that were asking other things. So, sure. yeah, that's fine. So, uh, but it is great to, it also... I, I like getting the questions out in the open because it does show that everybody's got these rolling around the back of their heads. And it does cause them to sometimes wonder, like, eh, well, I believe in something that's really uh, not to be believed. And so I like surfacing it. And what we're wanting to do is create a culture where it's okay to surface those things. It's okay to uh, – because I personally – and this is where I'm going to start. Uh, I'm personally going through – having a ball just decided to read through the entire text again and started in Genesis – uh, at the beginning of the year, I'm taking my time and just really enjoying just reading uh, uh, the text of Genesis and, and going to read on from there. But I get why people stumble around. And we did get one question uh, that had to do with, and I, I just read this uh, passage in the last few days, where it goes through, uh, I think it's in Genesis chapter 5, where it starts naming off Adam and all his descendants and all the different people, and and it'll record their age. Uh, like And the ages are like, 
800 years. But it'll always stop and also say, like, well, when the guy was like 150, he had this kid. <laughs> and so you're like, okay, duly noted, that, that's fine. But And then it also adds, and then he died. And I think one of, that's one of the rhythms of the thing. I did take that away from it. It's trying to stress that, uh, and then they died, even if they did live that long. But someone did ask a question along those lines, and they put it this way. How did people live 100-plus years and then get pregnant at an old age? And what do I do with that when I see that in the Bible? Because it's obviously not our experience. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I would say is, in addition to thank you for having us on the show with you today, Pastor, we're so excited to be here. And it's so excited to be with Sarah again, because we didn't know what happened to her. So (laughs) glad to know you're still floating around somewhere. Uh, But yeah, when it comes, you know, this is, I did a, um, over four or five years, I did a verse by verse uh, teaching through the entirety of the book of Genesis because I think it is a fascinating and often mysterious and certainly interesting book. Uh, it's one of my kids' favorite books. When 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 I was reading when I was going through the Bible and telling the Bible stories when they were younger, uh, they love the book of Genesis because there's so much story. Oh, the stories are you know? fantastic. I yeah. love them. Yeah, they really are. But yeah, there are things like this. And so one thing that we could say is, okay, first of all, some things are strange enough that that it just makes sense that it actually did happen that way. Like it's, it's, it sounds odd to us, but if you come to the Bible and you're expecting not to be impressed with incredible stories, incredible, uh, you know, miraculous things, supernatural events, if you don't want that stuff, if you're saying before you ever approach the text, I, I don't think anything, only naturalistic sort of things can happen. Well, then you're going to be disappointed because there's a lot of things that are amazing in the Bible. And so a person like me would look at that and say, all right, um, I, I look at this, I take this as, I take this particular part of this story as historical narrative, uh, recording these things, and it seems like what it's trying to tell me here in, in this particular section is that uh, these individuals lived these certain number of years, and they had these kids, and then they died, and it really is at face value as simple as that. And so I kind of take that perspective. And why would that be the case? Well, as creation fell on this understanding, as the years roll on, that the, the, the ripple effect of that, let's say, is felt in greater and greater ways so that we're not just talking about, um, uh, we're not just talking about sinful things like, or physical things like uh, earthquakes and all that as creation's fallen, but also moral things. I can't come to this church on Sunday and I don't live too far away without seeing several billboards that are trying to advertise to me, uh, you know, insurance or something else using suggestively dressed women, right? So that's how much that sin has corrupted not only the world, but of course, uh, what we're doing in our function in the world and our activities in the world. To, to pull it back into this issue specifically then, when we come to these people living this these years that seem really long to us, Number one, there were a lot of environmental things happening in the book of Genesis that may have contributed to people living longer. But as creation fell, um, we should expect to see that having a lasting impact and perhaps even a snowballing impact on on people's lives. But if you find that uh, to be just on the face of it, yeah, I just can't accept that. Um, there, there is another way of looking at this that actually comes from not trying to fit the Bible with our experience or with science or anything like that, but to fit it with um, the way that the best manuscript evidence that we have and, and archaeological stuff that we have and what we know anthropologically about people in the ancient world, that it looks like maybe that there's another explanation, so I'll kick it to Dr. Pritchett to establish that one. Yeah, before, there's a, in the ancient Near East, we have a plethora of documents from 
the surrounding cultures, even the ones that preceded the Exodus. So um, one such document I can think of, if you think that the years and ages of people in the fifth chapter of Genesis are long, you can look at the Sumerian kings list and how long they reigned between 10 and 48, 49,000 years. And people want to say 900 years is, is a long time to live. Well, that's a long time just to sit on a throne, right? So right. <laughs> what, what, one of the things we want to do, though, is I know what Dr. Hunter just said about, you know, when you're just kind of reading through the thing, it seems pretty straightforward that this is a narrative, it's a history, it's giving you all that information. Um, one of the things that we say in, like, our hermeneutics class, though, is to, to take the Bible seriously instead of just saying that you take it literally. Because if you were the original audience living in the ancient Near Eastern world, what they think is taking it literally may not mean what we think it means to be literal. Like, what is straightforward to them may not, in their culture, may not be the same kind of categories that we even think in in the modern world about straightforward readings, right? So, so in that cultural context, they might be used to seeing these large numbers as a way to communicate and ascribe honor to certain people, and the larger the number, the more the honor. Other scholars have tried to take those numbers and find a way to divide it by seven or divide it by some other 12 or try to find a way to divide these numbers up, and then they end up with some of these people only being like nine years old when they have kids, and that doesn't really work either. So <laughs> that'd be disappointing too. Right, you get to the end of your math problem and oh, okay, right, well, that, yeah, and, it's a it, nice experiment. It Maybe almost as amazing though. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't quite <laughs> yeah, work like right. you like it does like you want it to, so that you can crack that code. How do we get these to have normal lifespans? Yeah. Well, maybe it's not about lifespans, but it's the the quality of honor that was ascribed to them. And if you and this is not to square with science because it seems like it's an ad hoc scientific explanation to say the other explanation that as the world became increasingly wicked, it increasingly affected the human lifespans, right? right? But that's that's something that's kind of ad hoc and placed on it because after the flood, God pretty much put a limit on human age, and of course we're surpassing that now. But that all kind of misses the point. And so I'm sympathetic to that view that this is a way of ascribing honor to in a way that the original audience took it. And the reason I say that is because we think 900 years is old, but when Sarah found out that she was pregnant at 90, she said, how could I bear children when I'm so old? Right? right. I mean, she fell out laughing over the idea. Well, if men and women were having babies and after, you know... Why would that be surprising? Or four, why would that be so surprising to, yeah. to Sarah and Abraham? So right. to to caps to, yeah. to put the evidence on the table as best I understand what you're saying is you're saying look we all know that this looks a little odd but that doesn't mean anything because there's going to be a lot of things in tech in the text of scripture mm -hmm. that will strike us as odd and that may precisely be the point right, right. to amaze you or or to point out something amazing about reality or about God or whatever um, but in this particular case we have a, a, another culture that seems to have done the same thing or a similar thing. Um, well, what's the same is that we have these extended ages or long ages, whether they're literal or figurative, that is a similarity. The difference is that the Sumerians Kings list does have them extrapolated into the thousands, mm -hmm. but, but the, but that's a piece of data. It's not like you're just, someone's just pulling that out from somewhere to try and make it right. seem more plausible. When you're doing comparative literary <clears throat> analysis, 
with any documents from antiquity. When you're comparing Jewish literature to, you know, Mesopotamian or Sumerian or, or whatever, or even Egyptian literature, anytime you're doing that, you can't just note the similarities, but you also have to note the differences because the differences are as or more important than the similarities. Like one major difference is monotheism. That is a huge difference. Uh, and so you have to account for these kind of differences between the Jewish literature of antiquity and the, their surrounding pagan neighbors. So with a, with a question like this, uh, even a lot of conservative evangelical scholars recognize that there's kind of a universality to the historical account of Genesis 1 through 11. And I know people freak out over the word myth, but not myth as in not true, myth as in these are the mythos, these are the 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 formation blocks of the story of the great narrative, you know, like it's super, the universe we're, we're dealing right. It's, it's the yeah. world building, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, here are the mythos of Superman. He was, you know, uh, Krypton exploded. His parents sent him to the farm in Kansas and he grew up in Smallville and all, all those things are part of the mythos. Well, what they're trying to say is, you know, Moses is writing part of our backstory is that the one creator God of the universe created the cosmos. And here's some events that can help, uh, us understand how he was related to, to humankind and how the nations were scattered, you know, after the Babel incident and all that stuff. And you notice that chapter 12, it's like, goes from this wide-angle lens to this, like, telescoping spotlight Abraham. on Abraham. Yes. And so that's a clean break in the text that it looks like, and, and by the way, Genesis chapter 1 is broken up over seven days, which I take to be a literal seven days. Yeah. Um, regardless of how old people think the earth is, I, I just read the text that way. Because um, it's a separate, it doesn't say anything about the age of the earth. Not that we want to get off on that issue. But <laughs> but it's well, a no, framing device yeah. that, we do you, have other issues that you to, find so. in surrounding Near Eastern literature. So right. in these creation universal histories, we're not, uh, the Jews weren't the only ones, Moses was the only person to break it up over uh, a, a seven something, you know, yeah. to, to frame it. So you take all that into account. It's, uh, you know, I'm just as open to the fact that this is probably a way of ascribing honor as uh, Dr. Hunter or somebody would say, yeah, they lived that long and then it just dwindled down over the course of history. So, and, and Braxton, you mentioned it yesterday and mentioned it again. There is a book out there that I don't know if it deals with that specifically or uh, that, yeah, uh, yeah. written by a couple of um, scholars that have kind of. <clears throat> lean that way that might be a good resource sure so so people that are interested in this should know about john walton and he has a number of books one is um uh the the lost world of genesis one and then there's the lost world of something else genesis two maybe i don't know i don't know (laughs) (laughs) the best book to get from him on this particular on these particular issues is the ancient near east and the old testament and the reason why they should get that book from john walton is instead of reading you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of ancient Near Eastern literature. At the front of this book, for I don't know about thirty pages or so, he summarizes all of it. He gives you the, the oh, is that right? He okay. gives you the so there the, are cliff notes of this book. The cliff out there. notes of all, uh, not oh, all, but a okay. large chunk of that literature that summarizes it. Now you can find those things freely available. The longer stories, they've all been translated. You can find them online for okay. free. You can find them in certain books on 
on that. Even published like Baker uh, Publishing, which is an evangelical publisher, publishes a kind of a a uh, overview book that gives you all of that stuff, like background readings to the Old Testament, and it has a bunch of this literature in there. It's very interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, you can find that stuff online. But he, that book, Ancient Near East and the Old Testament from John Walton, gives you like the the cliff notes for a ton gotcha. of that literature. And when they said Smallville, it's kind of speaking your language, wasn't it, Sarah? My ears perked up at that point. I, I know. I, I noticed like, that. Oh, I yeah, let me see right. what he says. Let me see if I can tell if he's right or not. So yeah, we'll, we'll right. try to include. That's the authority she is. Yeah. On this. We'll oh, try to include more geek references, Thank and we'll you. try to be more concise oh. going forward. That's right. So yeah, uh, and we will have to be, or uh, we might have to divide this up into five parts. Yeah. Uh, okay. So speaking of the Old Testament, this was a very good question, and I know that this was a a, a real issue back in the early church when they were taking things out into the the Gentile world. World and the early the early Christians did grapple with this. This has never gone away. They they worded it this way: Why does it seem like there are two gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? But yet God never changes. Uh, does not make sense. Is the uh, noted commentary there by this person that asked yeah. that? And again, I, I have a lot of sympathy for this one just because I know this wasn't a very early problem that a lot of people struggled with. Yeah, so what I would ask someone to do, I would ask someone, and, and this person may well know this and may be doing this, so I'm not necessarily speaking to them specifically, but um, what I would ask someone to do with a question like that is to um, pay attention to what you're asking. You're asking the question, um, if you're, ask, you're basically asking for an internal criticism of Christianity, of the God of the Bible. You're saying, if I assume that what you're telling me is true, I, I'm looking at it, and I've run into something that I think is a little bit of a rub here. This is supposed to be the God of the Old Testament. Jesus right. is, and and so let's just understand that you know it'd be let's we're presuming then to answer this question Christian theology on this matter. So we're going to bring that in, and if one wanted to say, well, yeah, but you haven't established that all that stuff is true. Well, this is an internal criticism, all right? So so if we're assuming Christianity is true, what makes sense of this? Well. First of all, let's let's examine the premise and ask, is it exactly right? What would lead someone to believe that that's the case, that the Old Testament God seems more aggressive or, or just seems different than the New Testament God? Typically, what gives people this idea is that in the Old Testament, you have certain things that seem pretty rough that happen, like um, the, the command to go into Canaan and, uh, and, and to take this land. Um, and those sorts of things. That's, that seems, it seems like a genocide happening there. It seems like, um, you know, we don't want to think about God as a, a warrior in that way, although, you know, the text of Scripture sometimes describes him like that. So that seems problematic. Um, and then you come over to the New Testament, and you have Jesus, who seems to be just this glorified hippie walking around with sandals and an iPod, you know, talking about peace and love with long hair all the time. Well, Jesus did have a lot to say about peace and love, but it's not as though the is, those other issues that we attribute to the God of the Old Testament aren't there with Jesus as well in the New Testament. So, for instance, when it comes to Jesus in the New Testament, we may want to think about Jesus that way, but I think that the, God, the personality of the God of the Old Testament is still there because, let's say, in, in the book of Acts, you get the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, so far as I can tell, are believers, at least in terms of mental ascent. They're believing that Christianity is true. Maybe they're true born-again believers, you know, um, but... Uh, but they, but they lie to the Holy Spirit. You have to get into the story and understand what's going on there, but basically they lied um, about what was going on with their property and some things. And as a result, they died. All right, now this is in the New Testament under a God that is supposed to be the Christian God, right? The New Testament God. Right. And so they were killed. They were taken on home. Well, that seems, uh, seems kind of rough for Jesus. 
Um, but in the Old Testament, we also find out God is a God of love. So, and there's certainly God of the God of mercy is still there. Um, and Hagar says you're the God who sees, and all those kind of things are, are, are amazing too. So I think there's similarity. But one issue that I, I think we have to talk about real quick is that Jesus seems to say at times that things that the God of the Old Testament is supposed to have said are incorrect. At least it seems like he's saying that. So, um, you know, under the Old Testament, understanding of justice, an eye for an eye was justice, a tooth for a tooth. And in fact, I do think that's justice. I I don't think you could think of a more one-to-one correspondence of justice than eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're saying whatever happens, it's going to be fair. Well, Jesus says, but I, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. Okay, well, hold on a second. If you're the God of the Old Testament who said that, and it does seem to have some consistency, how come now you're over here saying, uh, turn the other cheek? Well, the difference is, in my opinion, Jesus was talking to his followers about how they were supposed to interpersonally deal with one another. That is a completely different question from what the courts should do, which was the issue under discussion with the God of the Old Testament. So I actually think that when you look at the past passages that may seem inconsistent, that they actually bear out perfectly fine if we don't come to them with assumptions. And I actually think that there's elements in the Old Testament and the New Testament that show us that this is the same God and the personality there, or at least the way of functioning seems to be the same. There you go. It's not a new question. Um, in the second century, the, the famous heretic Marcion wanted, he, he thought that there was, they, they couldn't be the same. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament couldn't be the same. And so he was making that argument and chopping out not just most of the New Testament that reference back, but he would even take Paul's letters and edit out the Old Testament references because he, he thought that there was early Gnostic uh, sects that also rejected the God of the Old Testament. And, of course, uh, Braxton, he did a documentary on uh, Revelation, right? Did a documentary? Oh, yeah. The Seven Churches. The Seven Churches of Revelation. Oh, oh, yeah, that. that. I didn't know. I was about to say I didn't know that. In Thyatira, what did Jesus say to that church? Tell me. He's going to kill their children. (laughs) I mean, so... (laughs) This seems pretty uh, (laughs) wrathful. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, you know... So, yeah, it's not like... Now, of course, it's apocalyptic literature and all of that, you know, and... And that was after he said nice things about them, but if they don't repent of the Jezebel spirit and all of that, right? <laughs> you know? The point is that sounds like Yahweh of the Old Testament, right? It's it, yeah. it, it does, yeah. It's judgment yeah. language, it, you know. It's it's, and of course, people don't know this because there's not really any direct citations. But Revelation also does uh, echo the Old Testament more than all the other books in the New Testament, even without like as far as allusions go. And so that judgment language is right. is is there. We can't just discount it or pretend it's not because we want a certain image of Jesus that the, even the whole New Testament doesn't uphold. So. Yeah. But it, yeah, but as you're, <laughs> you ever struggle with that, Sarah? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't? I mean, when you go through the Old Testament, you're thinking, oh, I, it's hard to picture Jesus doing that, you know, like, you know charge, go in and swing a sword, you know. When you read about him on the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, and the lady touching the hem of his robe and all the, the, all the well, super we, compassionate, miraculous things. That's what we teach about in churches. I mean, that's the sure. stories that we hear and the stories we hear in you know, Sunday school and, you know, and then we get into other things. People are like, I want to learn about this. But, you know, there's something, advan- I know we're taking probably too long on this question, but the, the, when we think I've about... I've already given in. We're going <laughs> to take too long on all questions. Well, okay. Well, when we think about the the, Amer- the American situation the, or, or just the Western church in general, 
it's this drywalled, air-conditioned sort of picture of Christianity that that anything that seems a little bit harsh or whatever, we're, we're going to sanitize that and not talk about it, at least in our artwork and things like that that we sell at our Christian bookstores and all those kind of things. And it's just a very safe, comfortable, but, you know, it's like... Um, People have, you know, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia thing. Aslan is not a tame lion. You know, this is this is an this is a uh, the, the God of the Bible is beautiful. He is love. He is also just, and that is not necessarily safe, depending on what you are and what your state is. But the wonderful thing is, just as we see in the Chronicles of Narnia book with the character of Aslan, who pictures Jesus, is Jesus is there to happily lend. Um, lend a hand to to drive us through and carry us through the uh, one of my favorite stories, uh, in fact, from Narnia, which now I'm just doing a TED talk about, is uh, is from the horse and his boy. I don't know if you guys have ever read the horse and his boy, but there's a place in the horse and his boy where the the boy's on his horse. Um, I guess the horse is beneath his boy, and uh, there's a light that's in the fog, and it's Aslan, and uh, and and so in the horse and his boy. We have this Aslan figure, this light in the fog, and he never sees him. But he's like, I know you're there. You're still there. And I, I just think that that's a, that's a beautiful thing about our God is it's not always going to feel safe. It's not always going to be this drywalled, air-conditioned thing. God is going to do things you don't like, and, and that's, that's fine because when we study the nature of reality, it's rarely the way we would prefer it to be in all cases. But Aslan is not a safe lion, but he'll get you through to the other side if you'll trust his word. Yeah, and when you read texts like that, let me go back to hermeneutics. and, and How are and you going to add to that? Yeah. That was like so beautifully wrapped up. Because that really had, uh, that was beautiful, but it wasn't wrapped up because people do need to take note about interpretation and what kind of literature they're reading. Mm-hmm. So when they're reading war rhetoric in the Old Testament or they're reading judgment language in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, apocalyptic literature, it's going to sound very, very different than what we think of uh, from our 21st century Western court systems, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah, don't. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. So it was, yeah, it was a nice bonus track. Yeah, bonus. Yeah. It seems like a good. We're not time. putting it on the main album, but it's a B side <laughs> on Spotify. It seems like a good time to talk about, you know, one life. We have a class called How to Read the Bible, um, Christian Worldview 101, and I know one of the the first topics is understanding the the specific type of literature and things that you're reading. So Exactly. Good plug. plug. Right that is very true. Yeah, I still got you, it. You, you still got it. Still <laughs> in the one life zone. Okay. So here's a good one that on the hiddenness of God, if God exists and wants people to believe in him, why doesn't he just say so? Like why not just appear and make it obvious? Yeah. So um, this is an interesting one. This I actually put this underneath the other this argument along with the problem of evil would be the two best atheist arguments, best arguments that there is no God. Um, but I put this, this is called the divine hiddenness argument. I put it underneath the problem of evil because it's just, it's just another thing. If, if God's all powerful, all loving and all knowing and, and what it takes. And if I were, if I were to know that he was there for sure, then I would, I could go to heaven. Well, then he, sh- why doesn't he step in? Just like, why does he step in with any particular issue of pain, suffering or evil? Right. And uh, so when, when I look at this, what I say, I, I have a couple of thoughts about it. First of all, on the face of it, and I know this will not sound compelling to people that are really <laughs> oh. in, in crisis about this, um, perhaps. But I think it'll, it, that is to say there's the, the emotional impact of wondering where God is when, you, when you, 
you're, you think you're being genuine about searching for him and, and there's no answer. Um, th- this, may, this may not help the emotional side of that, but frankly, the book of Romans says in chapter 1 and verse 20 that the invisible things of God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen or obviously th- seen through what has been made, through creation. So that idolaters, he was talking about idolaters who make literal little idols out of stone and metal and worship them, um, he's talking to them, but I think this works for atheism too. What he, what, what he says, what he's saying is that you should be able to look at creation and know that there's a God. And of course, all of the arguments for God's existence play off of that. You could go outside of this building and find a leaf and it has veins that carry nutrients to the different parts of the leaf. The leaf serves a function in the tree. The tree serves a function in the ecosystem. And there seems to be a clear design and uh, a teleology to um, p- putting this whole thing together there. And so Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 seems to give us this notion that you should look out and you should be able to see. Well, that means the Bible claims that it is obvious that there is a God and that he's not hidden. But I get the notion because the notion might be, well, then why doesn't he at least show up every couple of years on the White House lawn or something or Buckingham Palace or Jerusalem, whatever, or all, all of them, and just say, hey, I really do exist here. I'm going to do a couple of miracles and, and that's that. All right, here's where this all comes down to it. There's two different things that Christians are interested in. We're interested in people coming to believe intellectually that God exists and that Christianity is true, but, but, the, but we believe that demons actually believe that too. So that's not enough. We don't want you to believe in Jesus, like that it's true. We want people to believe on, that is commit their life um, to, to Jesus, trust Jesus. And it may be the case that what you think, that if Jesus were to appear on the White House lawn, that would actually result in more people believing intellectually that he exists. But that doesn't mean that it would result in more people trusting in him for salvation and committing their lives in genuine service to him. If God has omniscience, if he knows all things, then he knows what world he could make in which the most people would freely come to a knowledge of him and saving knowledge of him and trust him. And if he knows that this world, right now the way it is, with this level of evidence is the world where the most people end up freely choosing to accept him, if that's even a possibility, then God is not obligated to give us more evidence than, than what is going to be successful in convincing people. And you know, if God's overtures were obvious in the sky, this is how William Lane Craig says, says it, if it were like a neon light flashing in the sky, that could actually have the effect of repelling people. I mean, they could actually come to resent God's... Um, what they might consider to be God's overbearing presence all the time. I mean, there are certainly political figures that exist, like Donald Trump, let's say, that some people love and a lot of people hate, and none of them have any question about whether he exists or not. Right. So um, I think that one is to say every physical object and concept in the universe can be used as a part of an incredible reason to believe that God exists. And so to a certain extent, the Bible and I look at this and say, I, I'm having a hard time seeing how God is hidden. But I can relate because I get the notion of why doesn't he show up occasionally. But to summarize, I just don't know that that would necessarily result in more people uh, truly believing on. They might believe in, but they haven't necessarily believed on in terms of trusting Jesus. And if God has omniscience, he would know that. And um, if he did, it could actually drive people away. So there you go. That's an answer that has been given in the history of Christian thought. That Definitely I think. an answer. Well, here's the thing. Just like with the problem of... Just <laughs> okay, like, now we got to explore that a little bit. Well, I need, I need to say this too. Just like with the problem of evil, what... Uh, a, a person might be saying here is, 
it cannot be the case if an all-loving, all-powerful God exists and evil exists. Well, I may not know exactly why God allows evil to exist. I think I have some good reasons from Scripture and reason. But if I didn't know, if I could think of something that might be the case, then what it shoots down is the claim that such a God cannot exist, right? That's what we call a philosophical defeater. Um, to, to put it real simple, since we've already thrown the clock out the window, let's, let's, if, if Pritchett, if the three of, the four of us were here today, and there's no windows in this room, we can all confirm that, and uh, Pritchett left and he came back in an hour and he's drenched, and let's imagine that Pastor Brett stands up and says, I know, I know why Pritchett is drenched. The only explanation is that he fell into a pond or he took a shower with his clothes on. Well, I might not know why Pritchett is wet, but I know for one thing, that is definitely not the only option on the table. And he could have fallen in a, in a pond. It, someone may have done a belated ALS ice bucket challenge. Who knows? He may have caught in the rain. And in a similar way, I may not know why God allows the pain and suffering that he does. But if I can give you a, an explanation of why he might, that's all it really necessarily takes to shoot down the threat of this claim. And similarly with the divine hiddenness thing is if I can give you an explanation of why, why it might be the case that we have the level of evidence that we do and not more um, that has God as a God of justice, then it serves as a defeater in the same way. And Pritchett knows that, so I'd sure like to hear what he has to say in response. Well, actually, I was going to talk about divine hiddenness from a different perspective because mm. on, on the one hand, uh, I reject the premise altogether in the sense that I, I don't know enough about everything that happens in the world uh, to know that God's always hidden. But I do know what does happen sometimes in the world and that, you know, where people have visions and dreams of Jesus who are unfamiliar with Jesus whatsoever out in Muslim nations and then they're directed somewhere to come to know Christ. So I, I don't pretend to know how hidden or not God is in everybody's mm -hmm. circumstance. But on the other hand, I also want to say that we need to temper our expectations by the phenomena of Scripture. Now, being familiar with the Bible stories, we know that there's all kinds of supernatural events like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But what people don't realize, if they're not familiar with the timeline of Scripture, is that centuries go by where there's nothing supernatural or incredible happening at all. So, um, in fact, it seems to be there was a lot more frequency um, clustered around the New Testament than mm -hmm. there was in the Old Testament it, 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 as far as the time frame. So I want to temper my expectations by the text and say that God's not necessarily hidden. And the other thing is, when you think about when God does grand displays, he sends plagues, right? He parts the Red Sea, destroys the army, and how long does it take for them to just go build a cow made of gold? So that might not always be the best approach to this, you know, all of these big displays of Yahweh's power, right? Because right. people don't always react like you would think they should. To that. And last thing on a pastoral note, yeah. we should say this whole idea, we would ask a person asking this question, if you're an unbeliever, are you resistant to the evidence that does exist? They might say, well, of course not. I'm open. I'm ready. Well, see, these arguments, there's an atheist named Schellenberg. He's the champion of the divine hiddenness argument that we're talking about. And this person didn't bring it as an argument. But the thing about, uh, about that is you need in that argument, you need to show that the unbelievers who are not believing that you're saying would believe if they had more evidence are non-resistant unbelievers, which means that they would believe if they were given that evidence. So the, the, the skeptic has to demonstrate to us that they're non-resistant. You say, well, don't you just believe them? Well, I don't have to think that they're lying. But the thing is, this is why psychologists 
make the money that they do and have the jobs that they do. People aren't always as clear as they think they are about why they think the way they think. Yeah, some people so we can't like, know that we're not, uh, an unbeliever can't know that they're non-resistant. Yeah. So it may be that there's plenty of evidence for everyone to believe if they weren't resistant, um, which some, doesn't sound complimentary to the person asking the question. And I'm not saying it necessarily to the person asking this question, this, per, this particular person. But I would just say anyone asking that has to really consider, am I biased in a way I don't recognize? Am I really non-resistant to the but I think, uh, But I think in some of these, and, and we, we can't interpret that that this person was I don't necessarily given it as a defeater or even a knock against it. I think some people just kind of like, well, if you want us to believe, why well, not just because uh, theoretically, when we die and go to heaven, that's the way it will be. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he'll I don't think he'll be hidden in heaven. I don't mm-hmm. think so. I, I, that's the way I kind of interpreted it. Like as I'm walking around in life, and man, sometimes yeah, it, it does seem hard to believe he's there. Mm-hmm. And why not just kind of end the whole mystery thing? Let's just not do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Is kind of how I took it. And so, yeah, and you know, and that's know the, the Christian. How do you kind of navigate that in your own mind? Yeah, to comfort yourself in times so, of struggle. Well, so think the, about Jesus Himself, though. Jesus Himself, God incarnate in the flesh, and His own people did not receive Him. So, when people say that, you know, going back to your resistance, that you debated Matt Dillahunty, said that there was nothing that could convince him. Mm-hmm. Right, some people are that non-resistant, and we saw that in the life of Jesus. Well, himself. he didn't say there's nothing that convinced him, or he doesn't know what could. He doesn't know, but he thinks God would. <laughs> but <laughs> be careful not to get. Yeah, but no matter the, what the, y'all the have tried to say, what if this happened? What if this happened? He kept yeah. shooting them all down. So, um, well, let's just speak directly to the person asking in yeah. a very pastoral uh, way. I would say to a person who is asking this question, number one, it may not be as much as you might want. But the central message of Christianity is that this did happen, is that God did step in and that he came and did that. And there were hundreds of people who experienced his life and and followers of his. And I know that that's not perhaps where you're at right now and uh, what what you think would be helpful right now. Um, But there's also a side of this that we want to understand that when it comes to God's distance from us in, in that sort of way, one of the interesting facts about the way things are right now is though it, though though I have to recognize about myself that having been a Christian for so long, I can walk out and see the world and it seems immediately obvious to me that there is a God. But I know that not everyone is that way and so the state of affairs is actually such that there is such evidence on the table that if one wishes to believe and place their faith in Jesus, they're reasonable in doing so. But one could choose not to look at that evidence that way and remain in their unbelief. And it's a real choice. So you're not, you're not doing it. Um, you're not being coerced into it. Uh, the knowledge uh, of God's, the definite knowledge of God's presence before you is, is not something that perhaps frightens you just into it. There's actually a choice that can be made. And so there's perhaps a good that comes out of God's distance from us in that respect. Yeah. And the, the biblical answer is that, I mean, Jesus when he ascended, he gave the church the Great Commission. So I like to say, w- w- why doesn't God do more of the work? And I'm like, well, he has people for that. It's called the church. And in Ephesians 3 talks about how God wants to have the manifold wisdom of God on display through the church, it says in verse 10, right. chapter 3. So um, part of it is to give us something to do. 
There you go. You, you, and you need something to do, don't you, Sarah? <laughs> exactly. You better get on that. You know, more, more people might believe. No, but think about that statement. A, yeah, the manifold true. wisdom of God being uh, on display. I mean, you're talking about the powers and the principalities and all of that stuff. And it says the manifold wisdom of God and putting together this Jew plus Gentile group of people, that's to display to the world the wisdom of God through his church. Not through, he didn't say the Bible even, he said through his church. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. Which, which is incredible, which yeah. is amazing, and sometimes we're not real great at that. Right. So. <laughs> All right. So, which is that's the thing we need to get onto. Okay. So, how we're going to have to do this now? We're going to call this part one, and uh, and uh, because. Uh, we we are out of time uh, as far as all that goes, but we do have uh, several more questions that people sent in, and so we will make a part two uh, just to continue the conversation and uh, uh, keep people coming back and just uh, to listen to those. Because what I love about the questions, the good thing about them is is there are many and varied uh, as far as everything from hiddenness to uh, other questions about what happens when people die and things of that nature. So. Awesome. I don't even know how to end this then. You know, it's like we talk about, because uh, honestly, I don't know where the podcast email goes anymore. So um, you can email that probably. I'll probably still get it. I still have my email. Okay. So that's fine. Probably, yeah, you yeah, can just email okay. podcast at onelifechurch.org if you have any other questions, uh, more follow-up or things that you want us to pass along. Um, and I'll pass it along because I'm not going to answer those, but I can <laughs> definitely pass them along. Should, but yeah. no, thank you guys so much for um a good opportunity here just to to hear some more conversation and some um some opportunities for people to hear some different ways to think about some of these questions so appreciate your guys time we'll do part two soon thanks Thanks for having us great to be here